All right, I'm turning this evening to Matthew chapter 10 once again. Matthew chapter number 10. And we'll be looking this evening at verses 5 through 15. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. And we'll be dealing tonight with the thought or the subject of the 12 sent forth. The 12 sent forth. Of course, last week we began looking at the 12 disciples or the apostles who were called to follow Christ. And almost immediately upon him calling them, he is going to then send them on their way. He's going to send them with very specific instructions as to where they are to go uh, and where they are not to go. And he's going to give them instructions also of how they are to minister, uh, how they are to deal with how they are received, and ultimately uh, what is, ult- is, is going to come as a result of their message being delivered. Uh, if, let's just begin by looking at verses 5 through 7. There in Matthew 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there are certain passages throughout Scripture that sometimes contain what are referred to as hard sayings. Now, not really in these first three verses do we see one of those hard sayings, but this is going to introduce a section where one of the more difficult sayings of our Lord um, is quoted and is given to us. A hard saying of the Lord is simply defined as a saying that is difficult for us to hear, um, or it may be defined as something that might sound a bit harsh to us. Uh, There are times throughout the scripture where when we see Jesus speaking, um, we see what appears to be hard sayings or what we might say are harsh words. Uh, The prime example is when Jesus would deal with the Pharisees. Uh, He would use extreme direct language. He would call them vipers. He would call them hypocrites. Uh, He would call them words and phrases that were very direct and, uh, of course, uh, they were uh, very convicting to the hearer. Um, there are times when Jesus, even speaking to his own disciples, he would say things to them that were very difficult. They were things because they couldn't fully understand what Jesus was exactly talking about at that moment. Now, one of those hard sayings, we didn't read it, but I wanted you to drop down to verse 15. And, and we'll come back to this when, as we go through this this evening. It says, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Now, without context, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. We have to understand what city is he talking about and what judgment is he talking about. But he uses an example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we as believers uh, identify as the uh, definition of sin, a a place where sin was was, uh, was, uh, unrestrained, if you will. 
It, it, it was a, a place where whatever sin man could think of, man uh, was committing that sin. Now, the reason that this is so important is because as Jesus sends his disciples out, he sends these appointed apostles out. He appoints them to go and to preach the message, which is found there at the end of verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, This is, of course, um, a message about the messianic kingdom, about Christ himself. And, of course, these are sayings uh, that will lead to where we get to uh, this judgment and um, the realities of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah being used in the illustration. So Jesus is sending them out with very specific instructions. And as you notice in these first two verses, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus gave specific instructions as to where the 12 apostles were to go and where they were not to go. Now you'll notice, first of all, that the 12 were sent forth to preach to the Jews first. He tells them in verse number 5, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not in the way of the Gentiles. He clearly establishes the reality that at this moment in time, at this particular hour, you are not to go anywhere near the Gentile cities. You're not to go anywhere near the Gentiles at this point in time. And he's so specific that he says, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. Don't go anywhere the Samaritans are. Do not go into any of the Gentile cities. Do not go unto these Gentiles. But go, notice what he says in verse 6, rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now when Jesus spoke these words, he and the apostles at this particular time were in Galilee, which uh, we're not going to do a, a giant geography lesson tonight, but this would have been the northern part of Israel. And he tells them, really, you're not going to go any farther north, and I don't want you to go to the east, and I don't want you to go to the south, because in the land to the north and the east, those were Gentile lands. So if they were to go north or to east, they would be going into Gentile cities, Gentile lands. And to the south was the country of the Samaritans. Now, where Galilee was, the Mediterranean Sea would have been to their west. Jesus was simply and directly telling them, I want you to focus your beginning, we'll call it missionary activity. I want you to begin right here in Galilee because I am sending you, and he says specifically, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in other words, Jesus says to the apostles, your first mission, your first mission, proclamations, your first preaching, the first ministry is going to be to the Jews. Now we see that same priority was emphasized by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 when Paul uttered those words, which I'm sure we're familiar with, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first. Now, when Paul was saying that in Romans, he was echoing the commission that Jesus had given to the apostles. The Jews were to be the first recipients of the message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus commissioned these apostles, he says specifically, right now, I don't want you anywhere near the Gentile cities and I don't want you near the Samaritans. 
I just want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, of course, that verse in Romans 1.16 finishes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul acknowledged that at some point in time, Jesus did change that command in such a way and said, okay, now I want you to go to the Gentiles. But in this first commissioning, Jesus specifically tells the disciples, I want you to stay to the house, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I'm going to read to you uh, Matthew, Pohl, Matthew Poole's um, commentary on these two verses because he gives a little bit of insight as to the, who the Samaritans were and who the Gentiles, how they were described. He says that the Samaritans were partly Jews apostatized and partly heathens descended from those whom the king of Syria sent thither when the ten tribes were carried into captivity and from some Jews left in the land. You shall read of their religion in 2 Kings chapter 17. They were perfectly hated by the Jews. The Jews at this time had miserable teachers, so as they wandered as lost sheep. And this goes with what we had in the last verses of the former chapter. There was a great harvest, but few laborers. He is therefore providing them laborers, shepherds, that should gather those scattered sheep into one fold. So the Samaritans, the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans cannot be underestimated. Um, we're talking about a hatred that was not just a strong dislike. This was a, this was a despising um, a hatred of them. And yet, here Jesus is clearly identifying that the Jews at this moment, these Jews who have these miserable teachers who are leading them wrongly, they are teaching them the wrong doctrine. I want you to go, and that's why they're referred to the, as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we know that they are not to go to the Gentiles at this point, but they are to go to the house of Israel, and he tells them specifically what he wants them to preach. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that phrase, the kingdom of hand, is often and sometimes referred to as the apostolic message. But it is not a new message. That is the continuation of the message that both John the Baptist and Jesus themselves were preaching. John the Baptist himself said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus was not introducing a new message. He was having them continue the same message in which he had given and had spoken himself and that John the Baptist had said. Now, why is this important? Because we got to keep in context that the Jews had the priority given by God to receive the kingdom of God. Now, why was that? Why did Jesus restrict this first missionary uh, itinerant uh, pastor or uh, uh, preachers rather? Why did he restrict it to Israel? He doesn't say. He doesn't say specifically, and if we tried to answer the question, we would be entering into some speculation as to why he specifically at this point says, I don't want you to go anywhere near them. But we do see in Scripture that Israel, throughout the Bible, is called by God unto himself. 
The Jews were intended to be a blessing to all people. They were intended to be a blessing to the people of the world. Jesus himself was a Jew. We understand that he came unto his own and his own received him not, but he was nonetheless a Jew. And it was a priority to Jesus in some sense to reach the Jews himself and to reach his own people. Again, John 1.11 says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now it is generally true, and I think we'll, if you studied this out, you will find it's generally true, the vast majority of the early converts to Christianity were Jewish people. They were people who had waited for the coming of Messiah. They were people who had, had heard of the prophets. They believed the prophets. So many of the early converts were Jews. They were, they were those who had been waiting and for the promised Messiah. So Jesus sends the apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to give them this message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same message. Folks, this is the same message that the church is to be proclaiming to the whole world even today. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are still, you and I, our church is preaching the same message that John the Baptist preached, the same message that Jesus preached, and the same message that the apostles were commanded to go and preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is familiar because we do know John the Baptist began his earthly ministry. We see back in Matthew chapter 3, notice his words. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying... Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So it is the message that John the Baptist began. It's also the message that Jesus preached when he began his earthly ministry. Turn over to Matthew 4 and look at verse 17. From that time... Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message John the Baptist preached is the same message that Jesus is preaching, and it is the urgent call of the gospel today. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is telling his apostles very simply this. I want you to go and preach to the Jews the very same message that I've been preaching, the very same message that John the Baptist was preaching, I want you to preach the same message. <clears throat> that same message was dealing with the main crisis that the world had at that time, and it's the same crisis that the world has today. The supreme crisis of history, the supreme problem of history is the reality of man's sin and the reality of the coming kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. They were to go and to announce that the kingdom, the one that the Father has anointed, Jesus, he's come. He's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as he sends them out with that message, go back to our text there in Matthew 10 and notice that he says, here's what I want you to do. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, 
raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. Now remember, we learned last week that he gave them power, verse number one, against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. He didn't give them those things just so they could brag about it. He gave them those powers so that they could actually use it. Now these healings and these casting out were to be used to authenticate the message that was being preached. So heal, he says, cleanse, raise. These were the signs that would authenticate not only the message, but remember, he gave them power and authority. So the apostles had the authority. The doing of these miracles would authenticate their authority to say these things. But then notice that phrase. Jesus says, freely ye have received, freely give. Now, it's interesting, I've, I've read this many, many times, and I have to say, I've often, I've blown by this, this phrase. But look at it. Freely ye have received, freely give. Jesus is reminding even the apostles that they had received this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, through him as a gift. They were recipients of this gift of grace. They didn't earn this. They didn't merit it. They didn't buy it. They weren't worthy of it. They were given it as a gift. Folks, what was true of the apostles, even at that time in redemptive history, is equally true of us today. Freely, we have received. We have freely received, and then he says, now freely give. What was true of the apostles as far as what they were receiving, what they were to do with it. If you have received the greatest gift that, G, that a, a human being can ever receive, you need to remember, and I need to remember, I did not earn that. I did not buy it. I am not worthy of it. It was freely given to me. I didn't merit it. But rather, it was a gift by the grace of God given freely. Jesus was reminding them, that which you have received freely, I want you to freely extend that kingdom to others. I want you to go freely proclaim this gift of God. In these words, he gives them actual power. What does he give them power to do? He gives them power to preach. Folks, we really need to keep in mind that the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, requires the power of God to be effectual. Any person can get up and mouth a few words. Any person can get up and even can read scripture. Any person can get up and say that they know the things of God. But only the power that's given by God makes the preaching of the gospel effectual. He's giving them power to preach the gospel. He's also given them power to confirm the doctrine they are preaching by giving them miraculous gifts. Healing the sick, cleansing the lepers raising the dead, casting out devils. He bids them to go and preach. Now the word preach literally has the meaning or the expression of cry like a herald or cry like one who makes an announcement. It doesn't necessarily refer to how loud or the volume, but what it does do 
is it is very similar to what Isaiah's commission was in Isaiah 58 verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. He was not sending them secretly. He was not sending them as ones who were doing this covertly. But rather, he says, I want you to go just like Isaiah was commissioned, and I want you to preach aloud. He teaches them, here's what your sermon should be about. Preach the kingdom of heaven. The same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that Jesus Christ preached. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interestingly enough, if you look at Luke chapter 10 verse 9, which makes reference to the 70 uh, disciples, look at what they're told to do. Luke 10 verse number 9. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So even those 70 that were sent out and appointed were could carry the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when he gives us the, the instructions to say, preach this, Jesus did not mean that the only words they could say were those words. He didn't mean that when you go, just repetitively keep saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? What he was telling them is that should be the central theme of everything that you proclaim. In other words, that's, that's what they were to declare. Now, what that means is, is they were declared that the time had now come when God had fulfilled the promise to send the Messiah and that the process of setting up the kingdom was now occurring. This doctrine, the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, would be confirmed by miracles and it would be shown in what they were proclaiming. So they're sent out. They're sent forth to preach to the Jews first, and the message is to be this. Preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember, the healing of the sick, the cleansing of the lepers, the raising of the dead, the casting out of devils, at this point in time, only pertained to the Jews. Number two, verses nine through 10. The 12 are sent forth trusting God for provision. The 12 are sent forth Trusting God for provision. Look at these very practical instructions. Verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. So he gives them the doctrinal message. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he gives them very practical instructions. He says provide no gold or silver or brass in your purses. He says, I want you to take nothing with you. In our modern day, he's telling them, I want you to go without finances. I want you to go without provision. Now, any of us who've gone anywhere for any amount of time realize how much trust in God it would take to go a mile away with no provision. Yet that's what he's telling them. I don't want you taking gold, silver, or brass. He covers all the things that they could have thought about. Well, what did he mean this? 
He didn't want them to carry any of those things. But then he goes on and he says, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. They were not to be burdened and weighed down with finances or concerned about their provision. A scrip is a bag or a sack for provisions. Now think about that for a moment. Not only can you not take any provisions, but don't take anything that will hold provisions. They really are going out with nothing. They're being sent out with absolutely no provisions of their own. Staves are staffs. Uh, Some of those staffs were used as weapons. Some of those were used for defense. But he also makes mention for the workman is worthy of his meat. This is the simplicity that God was requiring them, food of any kind. He's requiring them to go in simplicity. Now this phrase, but the workman is worthy of his meat, is very insightful as to what Jesus is teaching. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament principle of the people of God providing for the ministers of God. Both in the Old and New Testament, you see the principle that those that minister in the gospel are taken care of by other people of God. They're taken care of through uh, things such as the offerings and the tithes. Now, it's not an accident that God instituted the giving in the Old Testament to be sure that those who had been entrusted with sacred things would have adequate provisions. God knew that he simply was telling them, Christ was telling them, to leave their care to the other people of God to take care of them, to provide for them. Again, Matthew Poole is extremely um, helpful in this. Here's what he says on this verse, these verses. He says, our Savior designed to give the apostles an experience of the providence of God and to teach them to trust in it as also to teach people that the laborer is worthy of his hire and that God expects that his ministers should not live of their own, but upon the altar which they served. So as at once he taught his apostles not to be covetous and people to provide for those who ministered to them in things spiritual. The sum is in their first journey, which they were soon to dispatch, he would have them trust God for protection and sustenance and load themselves with nothing more than necessary. Now again, we may look at this and say, what's the big deal? They were fully sent out to trust in God's provision. God's provision was many, many times done through the people of God. That's what makes this next step very important because this is connected. These thoughts are not, they're not broken thoughts. Verse 11, And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it not be worthy, let your peace return to you. Jesus goes on in verses 11 through 13, And he gives them some guidelines. He was reiterating the principles of hospitality. These principles are set forth in the word of God. 
And he said that if the apostles, if you are to find a household that will house you, will feed you, and support you in a given town, that they should then let their peace or their benediction be upon that house. In other words, if somebody receives you into your house, grant your benediction, good words, peace upon them. In other words, he's talking about the reality that some are going to receive you and others are not going to receive you. If they put their benediction upon the house, if the apostles found reception there, they were, in essence, Jesus was saying, my benediction would be on that house as well. My good words would be on that house. In other words, if they receive you, then they'll receive me. But if they were counted unworthy, meaning they would not house them, they would not support them, they would not feed them, they were to withhold Jesus' good words upon them. They were left with no benediction. They were left with no good words. But look what it says in verse 14. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now, again, we have to go back. We have to go back to the hatred because this is all connected. We have to go back to the hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles. The Jews literally, from their perspective, counted the Gentile people ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. That uncleanness extended all the way to the houses and the lands of a Gentile. So if a Jew, this is, how, this is how despised this was. If a Jew had to travel through a Gentile territory, had to go through a Gentile city, or heaven forbid, go through Samaria, right? Which Jesus made an intentional trip through Samaria to meet the woman at the well, which that's a significant event in biblical history. But if a Jew had to do that, upon arriving back in Israel, the Jews were so put off by going through the ceremonial unclean places where the Gentiles walked that they shook their clothes and they dusted off their feet to rid themselves of even the dust that came from those unclean places. It would be like us going into another state and because our feet were in that other state that when we got back, we were so appalled by the dust because we carried some of that state's dirt with us that we would shake it off because we don't want anything to do with it. This is symbolic. When Jesus is talking about shake off the dust off of your feet, this is not just something Jesus is making up. This goes all the way back to the way the Jews felt about the Gentiles and the Samaritans. This was a symbolic gesture of repudiation of everything that was unclean. In other words, Jesus was telling the disciples and the apostles to use this symbolic gesture. Remember I told you some hard sayings. Use that symbolic gesture if you are not welcomed or believed in a particular town or a particular house. 
You've got to go back and remember just how bad the Jews hated the Gentiles. Jesus is telling them, use the gesture that the Jews use when they've crossed through Samaritan territories or Gentile to houses that are unworthy. Those who will not receive you. Those who will not believe. Now why does that matter? Because that brings us back to the hard saying that we started with. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. It'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city who refuses and rejects the message of Christ. These 12 in verse 15, not only do they preach the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven also cannot be preached properly without preaching the judgment of God. So the 12 were sent forth to preach the judgment of God. Now we're at that hard saying. Verily or truly I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Was Jesus just speaking here to make a point? I don't think so. I think he was speaking with literally. He was saying it will be. There are two, two main lessons here. The first lesson is this, that the Old Testament represented the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah as the very epicenter of corruption and sin. Isn't it amazing that if you mention Sodom and Gomorrah even in the world, they have an identification? Oh, that's that really wicked place. Those were those wicked towns. I mean, even a non-believer identifies Sodom and Gomorrah and says, oh, I've heard about that. The Old Testament uses that to represent the most wicked cities in all of biblical history. If someone was to say, what is the most wicked city in all biblical history? Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be what comes up. What did Sodom and Gomorrah meet up with? They faced the judgment of God. So Jesus is making a comparison here. He's making a comparison and telling the apostles that if you go into a town and you preach the message of the kingdom of heaven and the people of that town don't receive you, he says, shake the dust off of your feet, shake the dust off the town of your feet, because it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the town that rejects me. Now that's a hard saying. Anytime Jesus uses the word verily, he's using it to really drive home a point. Many times it says verily, verily, or truly, truly. He's identifying that this will be so. Again, if we didn't have the identification of how the Jew thought about going through Samaria or through Gentile lands and how shaking the dust off their feet was a sign of, of really just disgust, Jesus is saying to the apostles, those towns that don't receive the message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, shake the dust off of your feet, move on to the next, and understand this, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Really strong, hard saying. I believe that this statement that Jesus is making is not just some kind of an illustration, but it is, should be taken literally. Now, folks, the reality is, is most people, and it's becoming more and more sadly accepted, most people are growing more and more numb to the reality of the judgment of God. Most, many people are beginning to even start, they're beginning to doubt the reality of a place called hell. 
They're beginning to get to the place where uh, we really don't think that things are, there really isn't a hell, there really isn't a uh, judgment to come. And I will tell you this, that if we begin to believe that there is no judgment, or we begin to believe that there is no hell, we will get to a place where we will lose any burden and any zeal for people who are unconverted. See, the very judgment of God and the very reality of the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the gospel message. If we lose sight and start to believe, you know, I don't really think there's a real literal hell. I don't really think there's a real judgment of God. Uh, we will lose our zeal. But we must begin asking ourselves the question, asking ourselves the question about our own conversion, about our own faith. And the only way you can do this is to start asking yourself the question, uh, what if, what if I really had not received the gift of God? What if I really was not regenerated? What if my profession of faith is false? What if... My eternal destiny is actually hell. Now, for a true believer, those three questions are terrifying thoughts. To even think for a moment, what if, I'm real, what if I really am not regenerate? What if I really have a profession of faith that's not true? That terrifies us. But the only thing that we understand at that point is, I have one choice and one choice only. I've got to run to the cross. I've got to run to Jesus Christ and I've got to repent of my sins and I have to believe that Jesus Christ is the only remedy and the only means of my salvation. It's believing that His righteousness is the only righteousness that's of any merit. There's nothing that can safely bring me into the kingdom of heaven than Jesus Christ and His blood. Now remember, He tells the disciples, freely you have received, freely give. The important thing is we have freely received a gift. We've received the gift of regeneration. We've received the gift of salvation. We've received it at no cost to ourselves. I think what this reminded me of by way of an application, that verse 15, that hard saying, it reminded me of the grace of God that I have received personally. The assurance of my salvation is restored and assured when I begin to understand that I am not under the judgment of God because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. He is able to save me. And he has saved me. But I should never get to the place where I start to think that it's something that I've done. The second lesson here is we need to learn, as Jesus said, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for a town that did not receive the apostles for the simple reason. Here's the simple reason. The people of the town that rejected the gospel are rejecting the message of the kingdom of heaven. And as a result, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. To reject the kingdom of heaven, to reject those who preach the kingdom of heaven, is ultimately to reject Jesus Christ. Folks, I've experienced enough in my life just as a minister. I've, I have watched people openly reject Jesus Christ. 
that statement, it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for a town or for an individual who rejects Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, many people think that the gospel is just something, well, I'll need to think about it. I need to consider it. But remember, let's make sure we use biblical terminology. God is not inviting people to come to Christ. He's commanding them to. The word repent is not a word of invitation. It's a command. We confuse this by saying that this is an invitation to come to Christ. No, repent and believe is an actual command. Acts 17.30 says, And at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Folks, that's why you don't find our church discriminating between who gets to hear the gospel and who doesn't. That's why we don't change a gospel message because somebody comes in and we say, well, they're not worthy to receive that. Notice again what that verse says. But now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Now, not even getting into the doctrines of election, but understand that the command to repent is for every individual who has lived or ever will live. And that's the message that the disciples were supposed to take. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If anyone refuses that command, they've done the unthinkable. They have disobeyed the command of God. But you realize if you talk to most people and you ask them, are you perfect? Most people will understand they're not perfect. But they don't have a true understanding of the gravity of what their sin is actually doing to them. When you actually ask somebody, do you do things wrong? Most everyone's going to acknowledge, well, of course I do things wrong. But do you know what the difference is? It's understanding the gravity of your actual sin, what sin actually does, what sin actually is. Not just so much, hey, are you perfect? Well, no, of course I'm not perfect. But do you know the most serious sin a person can ever commit is not murder, it's not adultery. It's to reject Jesus Christ. The great sin is unbelief. Now, again, because we are obviously from a Reformed position, there are those who swing the other side and falsely say something like this. Well, unless I'm elect and unless the Holy Spirit gives me grace, I cannot come to Jesus. Since I don't want him, I must not be elect. Therefore, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. But the reality is, remember this, God does not owe anyone free grace. God judges everyone justly. So those who refuse to submit to the anointed one, the Messiah, deserve a punishment that is more severe than the judgment that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Jesus is saying. To reject me is worthy of punishment that's more severe than what was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I know, Wednesday evening, this is kind of like, you know, Bible study night really, isn't it? This is kind of serious, it's kind of heavy. 
Folks, everything in scriptures falls apart if you take this away. That message that the apostles went out with was not in a message to go and try to restore and make the world better. They were being called to go out and they were being called to proclaim man's greatest and need of the great of the hour was to repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah has come. Don't reject Jesus Christ. Now that's a hard saying. I don't, I don't care how long, I don't care how long you've been a believer. It's hard. It's a hard saying to think about. That a person that rejects Jesus Christ, Jesus was saying himself, they deserve a punishment more severe than what Sodom and Gomorrah got when you reject Christ. That's, that's the interpretation of that text. Yet if a man or a woman refuses Jesus Christ, you cannot blame God for that. Now you and I that are believers... Even though it's a hard saying, we believe that to be true. We believe God is wonderful. We believe that he is merciful. But we also believe and understand that without repentance, there is no salvation. Without an acknowledgement of our sin and a belief in Jesus Christ alone. Folks, that's the message that the world needs to hear desperately. The very message, the very first message the apostles went out preaching is the same message the church should still be preaching today. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. The apostles were to preach it. It was not supposed to be a message that somewhere between the ministry of Jesus and now that the message has changed. These 12 were sent forth. They were given the power to preach the gospel. They were given the power to proclaim the truth. But they were also told, if someone or a town will not receive it, shake the dust off of your feet and move on to the next. It's a difficult saying, but very important. And it is a glorious truth, if you know the grace of God, that it has been freely given to you. Now you and I should go and freely give and we should preach that same message. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And this is indeed a difficult portion of scripture. And Lord, it would be tempting to zero in on the Apostles' Commission, which no doubt is important. It would be tempting to zero in on the things that seem to be the easier of the instructions. But to realize that all of this was coming to a point of one of the more difficult sayings of our Lord about the rejection of Christ. In our mind's eye, it is almost impossible to consider and think of a punishment worse than the judgment that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, yet that was our Lord's words. For the believer tonight, that brings us into a place of true thanksgiving and humility. To know that we have freely received the gift of salvation, the gift of the grace of God has been bestowed upon us, not because of any merits or worthiness of our own. And may we heed the words tonight to take what we have been given and freely give to somebody else 
to preach the very same message in which the apostles were preaching and John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus himself was preaching. Lord, we thank you that we can have a certainty of our salvation and we can have assurance. Lord, you are wonderful. You are long-suffering and gracious. And we thank you for that. Lord, we praise you with everything that we are. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's conclude by singing, I think, a very appropriate hymn.